A vision without execution is just a dream. Welcome to Transformative Experts with Chris Elias. Like the show title says, Chris speaks with transformative experts and business leaders who share their successes, failures, and leadership tips that will help you transform your business into a success story. Now, here's your host, Chris Elias. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Transformative Experts. Today, I have with me Molly McDermott Walsh. Molly um, has a long history in branding and marketing and operations. It's an interesting, interesting mix, and she has started a uh, marketing and operations consulting business. Uh, Molly, welcome. Thank you so much for having me, Chris. I'm excited to be here. It's it's good to have you here. Um, I, we're going to have some great conversations uh, today. You, you bring a lot to the table, a lot of transformation. Uh, we always start with a little bit of the the life history. So one of the things that that I always like to ask to kind of start the conversation is, you know, give um, give us a little bit of your story. Tell us how do you become an expert in marketing and operations, and you know what makes you you. I love that intro. Well, Chris, I think what makes me me is that I've always loved storytelling. I loved communicating. I loved connecting with people. And early on, I was given advice not to go to school, to have a very focused you know, group of study, but to follow liberal arts and figure out if you can connect with people and communicate, you can really do anything. So I was fortunate to have that advice, you know, in high school, study literature. I did not, I don't have a marketing degree, but I think what's made me unique is that I, I love hearing people's stories. I love finding other people's passion. And then where, where I get excited, I then help expand that more and promote it more and then help them do what their dream is. So I've used that to build my career of marketing, design brands, heritage brands, um, and really connect with uh, customers, clients, partners, and really build strong teams to then make that work happen. Uh, excellent. And so, um, your story is is an interesting one. You know, as I as I did a little bit of the background. I mean, you know, so you you kind of gloss over some of these brands, but you've worked with some <laughs> of the biggest well known brands in the world. I wonder if you could share some of those with with our our listeners, and and what were some of those projects like. Yeah, so I've been very, very lucky to work with some really great design brands that are notable. Um, I started my career in luxury jewelry, and then 2008 happened and the recession, um, and I lost my beloved job at Zenith, uh, which is part of the LVMH group. And after that kind of training and, and learning about design and manufacturing and heritage, I said, I want to work for a brand and a company that makes people happy, that makes people smile, that changes their life in a, in a positive way. And I loved my Swiss watches, but that wasn't for everyone. So I was very lucky to fall into the interior design world. And I spent many years at a family-run wallpaper, fabric, and furniture company, helped them build out social media when social media was still kind of a scary, unknown space. Yeah, um, what, and then uh, what year was that roughly? 2009 through 2012. Yeah, so social media was very new then. So excellent. Yeah. And so from there, I went over to Pantone, which is probably one of the most notable. Um, And Pantone was owned by a, a large company that really believed strongly in lean manufacturing. What was interesting was I was the I was hired as a PR brand manager and then went on to become the global communications director. And what was interesting about their business model was that they believed very heavily in the lean manufacturing and the Toyota method. And what was kind of a joke internally um, amongst many different uh, engineers was that me as the PR, social media, content, partnership, 
young woman probably wasn't going to get a handle on it, probably was going to be the most resistant to uh, daily Q-dips and action plans and processes and systems. And it was the complete opposite. I, I loved learning about Toyota. I loved the process of lean manufacturing, mostly because the two, the two biggest parts of Toyota are continuous improvement yep. and respect for the people. And to me, that was just like learning how about Toyota was, it was eye-opening and it gave me a framework to have conversations with the financial team, with the logistics team, with the engineers to say, this is why PR is important. This is why brand is important. This is why social media is important. And again, this was in the, you know, 2010 or 12, 2014, where it was still kind of an unknown why companies needed to invest in this area. And so using Toyota, using action plans and systems, I was able to communicate the value to the business and make a direct connection. These marketing activities helped increase our audiences, which increased sales, revenue, uh, trend reports, um, which was really powerful and has really shaped my view of business to this day. You know, it's really, it's a great story because um, people really think of lean as manufacturing, those that actually even know what it is. I mean, I I do find that that it's kind of been around for a while. And some of the younger companies I meet with, I say lean, and and sometimes they get get some glossy looks on their eyes, right? You know, what what is this? And lean in and of itself, though we call it lean, has been around you know, a thousand years in the Japanese way. And I mean, you know, it all started as being known as the Toyota way and, and um, we named it lean here for, I don't know, some marketing firm got a hold of it and now there's a whole yeah. industry around it. Right. Sure. But lean is not just for manufacturing. And that's the thing that, that gets missed. I mean, it, it's certainly because of Toyota, you know, it had the manufacturing flair and we've created all these systems and there's an industry and a consulting industry around it and all this other stuff that's all focused on manufacturing. But but it does have a very big place in management, in marketing and all these other things. So your ability to tie it together, it, it's a very, very interesting story. And and I, I find it also interesting that, that you, you kind of got that look when you started getting into it, this marketing person. And maybe even to oh, some yeah. extent, this woman, right? Because cause manufacturing oh, kind of yeah. is like a man's world is what they say. And we have to break those yeah. barriers, don't we? Yeah. And and Chris, I'm glad you caught that because it really then became a, all right, game on guys. Like I am not only going to learn this, but I'm going to love it and I'm going to win at it. And I think part of it was for me, they were totally right. At first I was like, this is too much. I'm a creative. I don't want to work on a spreadsheet. But then once I learned more about it, I was able to embrace it because it gave me a, it gave me a framework. I, I am a creative. When I look at a blank sheet of paper it's both exciting and overwhelming for where to start, but to be able to have these buckets or this template to work from, to be able to make those connections and clearly communicate with anybody else across the business who has all different types of experience, it, it was freeing for me. So I knew I could spend the time doing the action plan to make a really creative activation happen because it helped me think through all the different parts and pieces. It helped me track progress amongst a large disparate team. And that framework has really, I've brought into every other position I've had throughout my career. And I think it's what's helped me carry off some big, exciting, complicated projects because I had this really strong foundation. Well, you know, I want to highlight something you're you're talking about right now. Um, and it's, it is the need for data metrics measurement, even in marketing. You know, um, yeah. I was working with a client the other day and they're trying to pick a new marketing firm. 
and they're they're like we don't know which way to go they all have a great story and of course their their business is is kind of marketing and selling so they all sound great how do we pick i said well ask them how you know how do they measure their success and you know, two out of the three of them said, "Oh, you know, there's, you know, the you kind of the long term way. You know, you get more business." They had no clarity, and and the one that yeah. said, "Well, you know, we have a system. Here's how we measure this. This is what we put into place." They almost used lean type systems for their their marketing. Yeah. I mean, I don't know that they would have called it that, but they had established these really really important metrics that say, "So what we're going to do is we're gonna, you know when we spend these dollars, we're going to take a look at the number of impressions, how many click throughs." I mean, they had a system for proving that their marketing is working. And a lot yeah. of marketing companies don't. At least that's that's been the experience that I've been having with my clients that look for marketing companies. Um, so, you know, you kind of glommed onto this at a very, very, you know, early point in, in marketing, bef- you know, back when measurement used to be different. You used to look at TV ratings. You used to look at, at yeah. newsprint. You know, it's different now. Yeah. I mean, I, I said this the other day. I remember when I was at LVMH and we said, we will never sell product online. We will never have social media pages. That is not what a luxury brand does. And I very much understand that type of thinking in 2008, 2009. But now you look at what's going on on, on all types of marketing. And I think that's where I really like what I'm doing because I remember, I remember the old days when you didn't have to do, you know, cost of acquisition and spend most of your time in Facebook business manager, but there's, there's a, there's an art and science behind the digital that we're doing today. That's so measurable. And there's an art and science behind brand and connecting with your customers and developing beautiful content that inspires and educates. And really I like to approach it looking at that holistically mm-hmm. because there is a way to measure. And then there has to be a little bit of room for that gut feeling. I can't put a number on it, but just trust me, this is going to work. I, I completely, completely get that. Um, I, I'm kind of curious, as you mentioned, I'm kind of a watch nut. So, so as you look today at brands like Zenith and, and some of the others, and, and I don't know with the listeners, but, but Zenith is certainly one of the, the kind of the highest luxury brand watches in the world, period. I mean, there's, there's mm-hmm. them, there's Ulysses Narden, you know, there's, there's Omega, yeah. there's a handful of them that are just really at that top. Do you find that they have finally gotten away from that, that we're never going to do this? Have they gone down those paths? They have. And I, I have to say, I've been watching from the sidelines. I, I will always love Zenith. That was probably one of the best years of my life. Um, and I think that they've done a really great job being one of the oldest still surviving Swiss watch brands and doing partnerships with really incredible people. Like they just launched something with the artist Philippe Pantone and it's beautiful and incredible and unexpected. So I think that Luxury brands have done a better job of identifying this is who we are. This is our, these are our types of clients. Let's do things that they will respond to. Let's be where they are. And that's really what marketing is. It's being really clear on who you are as a brand, what your product value is, understanding who are the types of people who will want to purchase from you, engage with you, work with you, and then be where they are. Talk to them in a system and a framework that they are comfortable with and used to, and then build a really strong relationship with them. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And so, so you, you learned all this, let's call it lean stuff while at Pantone. I mean, you know, cause they had a, they had a fairly large manufacturing. People may not think about it, but the, but there is manufacturing behind the science of color. Um, lots yeah. of successful color launches. Tell me a little bit about those. 
Yeah. So, you know, the color of the year, there's so many thoughts about it. And really it was meant to get people to think about color, not just you're going to be buying t-shirts in this color, but more to understand, like, what do these colors represent? What do they make you feel? How is this representative of where we are as a zeitgeist and trend and as a culture? So it was really, you know, I think the, the very nerdy side of me who loves to research things down to the nth degree I loved learning about it and I love seeing people's response to the social media activations and the press stories and the partnerships and collaborations. Um, when I helped launch the 2016 dual colors, uh, Rose Quartz and Serenity, we worked with street artists in different cities to do murals um, that got people excited and they got to see it in their own neighborhoods and communities. And it made it feel much more direct and much more of a personal connection. And it was something that people didn't really expect from, from the company. Yeah. Well, and, and what, what's interesting about that. So a long time ago, I, I, in some of my research and when, when we were getting in the creative side of even creating materials that we utilize, you know, some of our workshop workbooks and everything, the, the powerful use of color to trigger certain, you know, aspects of neuroscience, right? There's a whole neuro-linguistic programming kind of aspect yeah. behind color. Um, and as somebody in marketing, I, you know, I, I would think that, you know, maybe in the marketing degrees, you know, they might teach some of that stuff. I mean, I, it's funny. I, you said you didn't have a marketing degree and, and a lot of the really super successful marketing people I've met don't have marketing degrees. Some of them do. Um, I think it's a newer degree in some regards, but um you know, this whole kind of science of color is a big thing. I mean, there's so much companies can do with it if they know. Yeah. And it's, it's so hard to know where to start. You know, I've, I've spoken with brands who really agonize over picking their brand color and where do they start? And, you know, when millennial pink was, was popular, which I feel a personal partial responsibility for that, you know, companies even a couple of years ago, were still trying to use millennial pink and it was hard to say, Yes, that is popular right now, but it's waning and you don't want to be picking something to identify your brand of a waning trend. And in fact, you shouldn't be really just following the trends. You should be thinking about who you are, who you are as a brand, who you are as a product, who your customers are, and then pick something that's appropriate. If you want to be part of the crowd, then pick the iconic color family of that crowd. This is why every tech company is that kind of cerulean blue. But if you want to stand out from the crowd, if you want to be different, if you want to stop people in their doom scrolls tracks, be a color that they're not used to seeing. Be a color that makes them question, well, why did you choose that? What does it mean about who you are and what your product is? Well, and, you know, you've, you've, you've talked about brand quite a bit and the, there's more to it than just the logo. And, you know, right. people sometimes think, well, the brand, oh, that's just our logo. That's, that's our look. But there, there's so much more. There's so much science. Now we've only got about a minute left. So um, I'm, I'm hesitant to get into this topic before the break because it's a bigger than a one minute topic. But as part of that, though, the one, the one aspect of brand that's, that's key is that brand is a long-term play. It's not about the next couple of years. Yeah. You need to be thinking short-term for sure, but you also need to be thinking long-term. Yeah. Yeah. So let's, um, let's continue this conversation in just a couple of minutes. Um, stay tuned, everyone. We're going to take a quick break. We will be back soon. Is your company or team struggling to achieve the results you would like? Optimize your life, your team, and your organization through clarity, purpose, and action. 
At Mexicute, we have over 100 years of combined experience leading organizations and coaching individuals to achieve their vision. We design a customized approach to ensure successful execution and optimize your results. Connect better. Grow better. Take the next step and give us a call for a free consultation with your host, Chris Elias. 888-378-8808. That's 888-378-8808. Keep the conversation going. Follow your host on Instagram at Chris Elias Official and on Facebook and Twitter at The Chris Elias to discuss your own business transformations and get real-world advice on culture, leadership, and execution. See you there. It's time to transform your business with the help of the Execution Culture, co-written by your host, Chris Elias. Make your company smarter, faster, and stronger with real-world advice on culture, leadership, and execution. The Execution Culture, available now on Amazon. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. This is Transformative Experts with Chris Elias. If you have a question or a comment about the show, please send an email to listener at transformativeexperts.com. Now, back to Transformative Experts. And we're back with Molly McDermott Walsh. So, Molly, before the break, um, you know, really, I just started thinking about this whole concept that brand is more than a logo. And and we really have to take brand very, very seriously in our companies. I don't think a lot of, enough companies take brand seriously, at least the smaller ones. They don't understand it. Big, well, you know, established corporations certainly learn. Um, you know, in your career, you've, you've actually helped transition and helped a lot of brands and really almost revitalized. And so, you know, after Pantone, um, you had one such project. I wonder if you would share that one. Yeah. So um, again, I'm feeling very fortunate about how life has transpired for me, but I was at Pantone and kind of winding down there had helped transform color of the year. And Farron Ball was looking for someone. Farron Ball is the heritage British paint brand. um, And they were looking for someone to come on and help drive their business in North America And they wanted someone who understood design, who understood color, but who also understood luxury and heritage product and craftsmanship. So given my background at Zenith, given my background at Pantone, I really was kind of the star uh, candidate for that. And also because I've had this training with lean manufacturing, I knew ways to communicate how to change in a way that wouldn't completely terrify the board um, or scare my colleagues too much. So I was at uh, Baron Ball for several years as a VP of marketing and worked to build out the strategy in a really effective way to hit the North American designer community, but also to really get more design-minded homeowners excited about Farron Ball, why we were different, why the small curated color palette was really powerful, and why you wanted to buy actual Farron Ball paint, not color match it at the, the paint desk. Um, and it was really, it was, a, it was a tough time. It was a lot of work to be done to kind of change some of the perceptions. But what made it really powerful, what I'm so proud of my time there, is that we were able to agree this is the foundation of the brand. This is who we are. This is what we want to do. This is how we can show up a little bit differently in North America while still staying core to who we are as a 75-year-old brand, but also doing things that are more relevant and current to get that more modern consumer. So how did, I guess the, 
the question I have is really, how did you do it, right? You know, at the end of the day, it's it's it was a lot of work, and and I myself, like a number of years ago, if you had said fair and ball, I would have never heard of it. Today, you know, when we're talking about it, and when I looked at your, you know, your work, and, and I'm like, oh, she worked with that. I, I knew I know the brand today. So so clearly, yeah. something has worked to get it out. And and I don't know how many of my listeners would listen to the band. You're not gonna. I don't think you're gonna find it at Lowe's, right, or Home Depot. Um, but, but you work with a designer and you find it and, and you did get the word out. So what actually did you do? What are the steps to, to rebranding and, and building awareness in a case like that? Yeah. So it started with a lot of listening. So when I came on to Fair and Ball, I had my own perception of, of the brand and loved it, was obsessed by it. And I listened to customers. I listened to friends. I listened to anybody who wanted to talk to me about Fair and Ball. And I had one conversation with a woman who had her own PR agency. She was very successful, very well established from England herself, who was here in New York now. And she said, yeah, I love Fair and Ball, but I hate going into their shops. I don't feel like I'm posh enough to go into their showrooms. And here I was sitting across from this very established, successful, total badass. And if she's saying she doesn't feel posh enough or like she belongs there, that's a problem. So then I I spent time traveling all over North America and listening to designers and homeowners because it's a, it's an omni-channel business. There's retail and design. And people said, yeah, you know, I love the colors, but then sometimes I would go into the showroom and it felt like, oh, maybe it's not for me. And those colors, well, it's a British brand. Therefore it's only appropriate for British homes. I don't know if that's going to work for me in Silver Lake or Lake Forest or Westfield, New Jersey. Mm -hmm. So what I really thought out to do was to show people, here's this heritage. Here's why these colors are so iconic and beautiful and different. And look, here it is showing up in Silver Lake. Here it is showing up in Lake Forest. Here it is in Austin, Texas. And it's, it's that it's the value of the brand. It's the value of knowing it's consistent. It's one of the best made uh, paint brands out there. There's no toxins, but also it's cool and it's hip and it's doing different things with the designers or the tastemakers in your region that you're paying attention to. So it's a little bit about kind of saying, yeah, we have this really great luxury brand, but it's accessible to everybody. It's, it's not just for, it's not just for the small group of people. And so did you have to then leverage that? And did you, Beyond social media, I mean, did you use traditional forms of media? Yeah, so we worked with, uh, you know, designers to build out new content, different media partners to help put our story in front of the audiences that we wanted to go after. And even understand, you know, a fair and ball customer today who maybe only paints one room of their home if we give them a great experience, if they trust the quality of the product and feel special in that one room, they're probably going to paint another room. They're going to move at some point. So it was this really, it was taking a longer view of potential customers than that kind of rapid right now, sell it to them tomorrow. And I think by building up the brand history and talking more about the heritage, talking more about the craftsmanship and how they produce it, help people understand like, this is for me, this is who I want to save up for. And also they're doing some cool stuff in in the design community that I'm really paying attention to. So, um, you know, you changed the look and, and the level of comfort in the showrooms themselves as well. So people felt more comfortable coming in. This is a lot of change for a long established, I, I, I don't want to say stodgy, it's probably not the right word, but, but, but a long established kind of maybe stuck in their ways, you know, British company. Did, did people just come along or was there a lot of kicking and screaming in the process? 
<laughs> there was a bit of kicking and screaming in the process. Um, I was so fortunate that actually the woman who hired me, who was the CMO of Ferrum Ball, she believed in me and she believed that, you know, I was a North American. I, I've done this. I've worked for the types of companies that they were looking to have that sort of same perspective on. So when I came back and said, you know, I've talked to so many people, they don't feel comfortable in all of our showrooms. It doesn't seem appropriate for Brooklyn. It doesn't seem appropriate for that neighborhood in Chicago. We need to switch things up a little bit. Um, so then we were given the opportunity to move our showroom, our, first, our second showroom in the country, actually, was on Melrose Avenue in uh, West Hollywood. We had the opportunity to move it just around the corner to La Cienega Boulevard in the center of the La Cienega Design Quarter. And when I heard about that, I said, Joe, we cannot do the same setup. We cannot have the same look that has been the consistent brand uh, look for all fair and ball showrooms all over the world. We need to play. This is L.A. This is West Hollywood. This is our opportunity to test this new concept. I'm very fortunate that between she and I, we were able to get board support and corporate support to carry off what was a very long, hard, but very successful project. Yeah. You know, change, change management is tough. And so, you know, you were able to, to kind of convince them to, let's say, dabble. You know, I, I don't know if they considered a high risk, a low risk. It's one store. But did this create you know, longer lasting change? Did they, did they start opening their eyes? And I asked the question, I've, I've worked my whole life. I've worked with international companies. It seems, you know, whether it was in my past career when I was, when I was doing a lot of work overseas, but even as a, as you know, a consultant advisor today, I've got a number of international companies and I sometimes get the, um, Oh, you know, those Americans or you guys can do it. Cause we get it. Americans are different. They're, you know, the, the whole world is this and you guys are so, so, you know, and sometimes they concede or sometimes they point the fingers and you guys are just weird or whatever the case may be. But there are other times when, when that change can be eye-opening and we see worldwide change. You know, did, um, did any of these changes that you helped put into place create kind of lasting change worldwide or was it really just localized here to the Americas? Well, there, there was, um, there was a bit of management change during, during the process, the project, which was interesting. Um, there was a great CEO who came on, um, who also ended up being a bit of a mentor to me, but when he came on, he said, absolutely not. This is not a good project. We are a global heritage brand. We must have the same look and feel in every single market. Why would we do something different in LA? And part of this whole, you know, selling in the idea was showing, North America is different. A North American customer is different. LA is different than New York. LA is different than every other major market in, in the <laughs> that country. That it is. And we talked about, you know, Aesop as an example of other brands who have taken a core brand identity and flexed it and massaged it, nuanced it just a bit to be more relevant for the region, the community, the area that they're in. And so by showing, you know, this is what other brands have done. We're not going to break it. We're not going to ruin it. That started to get more buy-in. And then really showing not just we're redoing the showroom. It's going to have different paint colors in it but showing how it was more meant to be a destination. It was more interactive. It had Instagrammable moments. It was an event space. We had uh, partnerships with local artists to get us more credibility in the design community and showing that it wasn't just a new lick of paint on the walls, but a very holistic, very comprehensive and really long-term plan to change the way people perceive Farrow and Ball in that market what was fascinating about it is that the design press that covered their opening and covered all of the events 
it picked up so much that it was nationwide coverage. And then people in Germany and France were saying, well, if they did that over there, we, we want to do the same thing here. We want to activate the showrooms to be more regionally appropriate and, and relevant. Um, I don't believe that that's really carried through. I don't think that that's the, the, the strategy moving forward. But I do think it helped Farron Ball understand that we are in, we're a global community. What happens in LA can resonate in Paris and Berlin and Dorset, England, and that people are seeing things. And so brands need to be aware that if it's on Instagram, if it's on the internet, they need to be prepared for how that will affect them globally and take those, those reactions, take that feedback to say, hey, maybe we should be doing things a little bit differently. Yeah. Prior to social media, you could have made changes like that and the world would have never known. You know, know, now yeah. everybody knows, right? And and yeah. I mean, just take a look at what's happening social media with everything. Um, yeah. You know, it's 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 an interesting concept, right? Because we talk about change being hard and change being necessary. The world modifies, and optimizing a brand is sometimes counteractive to stabilizing a brand. Um, right, and. You know, I can understand their argument. We're a heritage brand. We've been around, I, I don't forget how many years. We've been around a long time. Any, any company should be sensitive to brand change. I mean, I've, I've watched certain organizations kill themselves with a brand change. You know, they think, oh, you know, this isn't modern enough. And, and I mean, the, the decision to change the brand wasn't well-founded. It wasn't well-thought-out. It's just like, oh, we're going to change the look. And next thing you know, it's like, where all the customers go? Did the company get bought out? Yeah. Are they still the same people? And they created more confusion than good. So there's a part of me that understands the resistance to brand change. But there is this kind of oh, fine totally. line in this battle between optimizing it, which I think it's important to optimize your brand. You know, how do you do it in a manner so that, you, you know, it drives the greatest amount of traffic, greatest amount of sales and all that stuff, but still maintains this other side of it. So this had to be a really tough line to walk for you. It, it was extremely tough. And it was, you know, I, I live outside of New York. So I was flying to London, back to New York, back to LA to check in on the progress of it. So I was also then just, you know, physically exhausted by it. But what I did was really continue to, to keep focus on what we were doing, why we were doing it, what our expected impact was, and paying attention to who we are as a brand and what our types of customers were wanting and expecting, and really coming up with the programs and the marketing and the strategy behind all of it to show like we're not being influenced by trends. This isn't going to be a flash in the pan, but we, we need to see what's going on, what people are expecting to also make sure that we're showing up in relevant ways. And that that's the, the art behind marketing. No algorithm will be able to tell you what is that perfect formula for how to pay attention to what's going on while also optimizing, while also, you know, having a strong ROI. It's that marketing brain. It's that creative brain that will see that opportunity and say, this is how far we can push it in this way without breaking it. And we know that that's going to resonate with our customers because it resonates with us. Yeah, it and and that is that's key as well. So going back to the customer example that that I used um, a few minutes ago, that we're looking for the marketing company having a hard time finding one that, that did it. The the other thing yeah. was is when you know when you looked at their history longevity. I mean, there's a lot of marketing companies that you look and they're, they're, they talk about how great they are and they've been around for three years. It's, eh, okay. Yeah. You know, maybe it's somebody who's hung a shingle. They could have a lot of experience, but experience and time does not necessarily translate to success. There, 
you know, I, there's a lot of artists out there, right? My wife's an artist as an example, and she's mm-hmm. quite good. There's, there's a lot of artists better than her, um, and she's learning and growing, but there are a lot of artists that think they're great that, quite frankly, aren't. And art's a bit of a right. matter of taste anyway. But, there, <laughs> you know, you've talked a lot about art and science when it comes to marketing, and it does have to be this balance of the two. The art piece of it, not just the experience, but the ability, the, the natural instinct, I think, is what it is. The natural creative instinct to put it together also is is important to bring into these projects. In, in looking for a company to help you, you know, for any anybody out there looking for branding, that that is something you have to be able to evaluate. Yeah, and I think it comes down to to passion for what you're doing in the product or the category or the industry. You know, I love color. I love design, probably because I'm not a designer, but I I know the experience of walking into a really immaculately designed room and how it makes you feel different and happy and lit up. And so to me, I want to share that experience with more people. I want them to understand that they can bring this sort of experience into their own home. And so driven by that passion, that's how I I found the energy to continue to fly back and forth between New York, London, and LA to have these conversations with management, with my peers to say, this is what we're doing. This is why we're doing it. And I made a real point to work with the team. So I also wasn't just doing this in a silo. I was helping the whole global marketing team understand what we were doing together. Excellent. Excellent. Great story. We're going to continue on in just a minute. So we're already up on our next break. So everybody stay tuned. We will be back momentarily. Keep the conversation going. Follow your host on Instagram at Chris Elias Official and on Facebook and Twitter at The Chris Elias to discuss your own business transformations and get real world advice on culture, leadership, and execution. See you there. It's time to transform your business with the help of the Execution Culture, co written by your host, Chris Elias. Make your company smarter, faster, and stronger with real world advice on culture leadership and execution the execution culture available now on amazon is your company or team struggling to achieve the results you would like optimize your life your team and your organization through clarity purpose and action at nexecute we have over 100 years of combined experience leading organizations and coaching individuals to achieve their vision we design a customized approach to ensure successful execution and optimize your results Connect better, grow better. Take the next step and give us a call for a free consultation with your host, Chris Elias. 888-378-8808. That's 888-378-8808. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. This is Transformative Experts with Chris Elias. If you have a question or a comment about the show, please send an email to listener at transformativeexperts.com. Now, back to Transformative Experts. And we're back one last time with Molly McDermott Walsh. So, Molly, um, so many great things. So, you finished that project, and you know, I, I know that there was maybe a, a, a quick transition, but COVID hit. 
And like, like all of our, you know, guests, major life transformation, life transition, um, you know, today you're an independent, you know, consultant and advisor. What was the, what was the catalyst for that? And how did you go about setting up your business? Yeah, you know, I I think I'm definitely not unique in that COVID and everything that happened in 2020 made me really question, you know, what I wanted to do, what my passions were, what my values were. And I realized that I loved helping people, that I love being the the kind of system and creative uh, partner to to do interesting things. And I started having um, smaller design brands reach out to me and say, I definitely can't afford you. We don't need a full-time person, but I just love your advice. I love what you've done. And I gave, you know, anybody in consulting, you know, earmuffs, but like I would give out free advice and I would do brainstorms multiple times with founders who were looking to get into the design space. And I kind of started to realize I, I do have good perspective here. And I do have a lot of experience doing this and doing some really hard work, such as change management and expanding a brand. And there's so many smaller companies out there that I would love to help. And that there's also a lot of heritage, legacy, big companies who realize that they need to change. And I think COVID, the you know shelter in place, stay at home, it forced companies, particularly in more um, slow to change industries, to make some really rapid, really significant changes to their business models and the way they operate. So it's excited me to be able to take all of my experiences throughout my nearly 20-year career to be a guide and an advisor to the, the big ones who want to change and don't know where to begin, while also helping more of these you know, challengers and the, the underdogs really get their footing, get systems and processes in place to build out the product that they're really passionate about. You know, uh, one of the things that, that, that strikes me is, is I consider the COVID story. Uh, we've all... You know, we've all experienced, we've all been through it. We're on the back end of it. Hopefully now it's, you know, we're, we've, we're learning to live with it. And yeah. I am seeing two pathways, right? I, I'm seeing some companies that have embraced remote work. Um, and though there is yeah. a back to office component, you know, if you're in manufacturing, people have to be in plant or whatever. Uh, but over those times, they, they learn that they can work with people anywhere in the country. Thanks to remote, it really changed the game. Yeah. I'm also seeing back to change, right? And change being tough. I'm seeing other, sometimes larger companies that are, their attitudes, well, everything's got to go back to, to work 100%. You know, we're going to go back and this is the way it's going to be. And, and, and I also see them shifting back into old ways and not capitalizing on, on what was maybe a you know, beneficial move. Um, in yeah. the marketing world, what are you seeing? I mean, you know, how, how did COVID change how we market? And are you seeing a blend of kind of going back to the old ways or are people really sticking with the new? You know, I think it's a, it's a fascinating question, which I have so many, so many different ways to go. I think that people, it's almost like, you know, we always knew the internet's not going away. We've known that digital advertising and brands need to show up and have a presence, I think that there's been in certain categories an overcorrection where now it's let's all just do digital and let's look at our Instagram performance every single day, 12 hour, every 12 hour interval. Let's look at our progress. And that's not right either. So I think the companies that resisted it, didn't want to be on it, never wanted to play a game, part of the game. They've now focused on that and they've lost their brand message. They've lost their brand strategy. They've lost the ability to think, six months from now, 12 months from now, 18 months from now to be doing things that are compelling and doing them in a way that's really 
um, thought out and comprehensive, you know, these flash in the pan moments and looking how much one Instagram, that's not going to build your success a hundred percent. That's not going to build your future. So I do think that everybody needs to level set and also create a new way of working and marketing and branding. That is not the old way. It's not too far over to the simply digital way. It's more versatile. It's more appropriate for what your internal team is asking for. It's more appropriate for what your customers are asking for. But companies, leaders need to have that, that openness and that vulnerability to hear the feedback and make changes. Well, and I, I think it's a there's a perfect storm happening right now. So it's you know yes we COVID and in a couple of years and and there's always this pendulum effect with change where we're in one state yeah. and you go you swing all the way to the other and you have to figure out where to dial it in. We also have a generational change that's occurring right now, and so I mean I know millennials have been the topic and all that kind of stuff, but you got the Gen Zs starting to come into the workforce now. Right. Yeah. I mean, the, the millennials are, are, are almost aging out from from uh, how you target and marketing perspective. And so it's, it's a double whammy. You've got you've got COVID that's changed how we do things. But you've also mm-hmm. got this new group coming in. And with every generational change, I would think that companies need to look at their 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 marketing, their brand, their image, their message, all that kind of stuff. So, you know. Yeah. Is it your advice? I'm sure it is. I mean, everybody should really be taking a hard look at their story right now. Everybody should. And I'll say this as a geriatric millennial, that it comes down to honesty and truth. That's really what it is. The days of, you know, intentionally misleading people, and we've all seen the meme, you know, we want to return to office for the culture. And it's the picture of the sad cubicle. That's not like, just be honest. You want more people in the office to have those collaborative moments. Cool. You say that and I will be there two days a week. If you say that you just want me in five days a week, that's control. That's not accounting for the effect of my personal life, commuting costs, commuting time. And that idea of not a reciprocal respect and also not transparency for why you're doing what you're doing, that's going to make or break companies as far as their business success and hiring and retaining top talent. But it's also for consumers with information being readily available at everyone's fingertips, people can find out, is the company engaging in responsible manufacturing? We, I watched with Zeal yesterday with International Women's Day and the Twitter bot that was calling out all the companies who were tweeting about International Women's Day and then paying women significantly less than their male counterparts. I know. I the know. days of misleading people are over. Embrace that change of truth and honesty and you'll be okay. You might as well be truthful because it's going to come out. It's, it's again, this isn't the 1950s where you could bury data. Yeah. And you can't strong arm people because you're the one with the power. We all are in this together. We are a global community. It's been a very challenging time. There's opportunities to be stressed about everything. Let's create safe environments for employees Let's make products that consumers need and want and be honest about who we are, how we make it, what we're doing, why we're doing it. And I maybe I sound like too much of an optimist, but I do think that we can rewrite the rules of work and branding and marketing and business by really focusing on that core truth and honesty. Yeah, you know, it's, I, I, I was actually in a debate with the CEO I work with. And um, what, what's, what's interesting is, is, is conceptually, um, 
he's there with a change that needs to occur. Now he's, he's a CEO um, of a division of a larger company that establishes, you know, a larger, larger U S company that establishes certain rules. And, and they're stuck in those old ways. Like, so one of the concepts that, that, that I've talked about quite a bit, I've talked about this for 20 years. It's just, nobody wants to listen. Finally, people are listening (laughs) is at some point we have to change the mentality of not paying for time, but paying for performance. Right. right. If we take the time aspect out of it, if we stop sweating whether or not somebody's working 40 hours, yeah. you know, that yeah. changes the game. Now, look, okay, I get it. You've got certain positions, you know, they're low level positions, somebody working in a McDonald's, maybe or whatever, you're going to pay hourly. I, that's not going to change. But when you get to staff positions, if I hire somebody to be my head of marketing, for instance, how am I mm-hmm. measuring that person's success and are they achieving their goals or not? At the end of the day, if they're achieving the goals, they're moving the company forward. Why do I care how they're working, where they're working, who they're interacting with? I mean, as long as it's legal, ethical, all that kind of stuff. Why do I care about any of that stuff? I should be caring about the person's performance. Can they get the job done or can't they? And, and you, you nailed it. And I, and I hadn't thought about it quite in those terms, but when you said control, that's it. It's still an old control mentality that's coming into play. And, and you know what, these bigger, large established, long established companies can't get beyond the control piece of it. Can they? No. And it's, it's so infuriating to me, Chris, because it's not just, it's not just control for, for bad reasons. It's stupid. And it's short-sighted. We're watching the great resignation happen and your CEOs and leaders are throwing up their hands and saying, well, why? And even, you know, back to the hourly workers saying, you know, fast food, they can't hire anyone. They don't want to take jobs and be paid poorly mm-hmm. and deal with customers who are treating them like garbage. Individuals have the right to be happy and healthy and whole. So all of us need to be considering that in everything that we're doing. I think building a building a company where there's trust and respect, you will get more out of that employee. I've worked at very micromanaging, very controlling uh, environments, and that was the worst work I did. I was not happy and fulfilled. I barely each act out forty hours of work because I was miserable. It was the the managers and the leaders like Joe Rance at Farron Ball who gave me the gave me the brief, gave me the framework, and then let me fly all over the country and the yeah. world and work crazy hours and work out of an airport. But I was passionate about it. I felt respected. And I then over delivered because I wanted to. And that yeah. to me is the dumbest thing that leaders are doing today. You, you control people, you're killing their spirit, you're removing all creativity and you're getting even less out of the people that you already have in your organization. Yeah. I, it's, you, you know, you're, you're so spot on. I, I, I chuckle just, just a little bit listening to the story. Cause I, I'm just watching this in action and nobody wants to listen. It's like when, when COVID hit, Oh, everybody's, Oh, we have to figure this out. And now it's, it's back to, well, you know, we got to get everything under control. It's like, well, what do you have to get under control? Not only did you survive, but most of you thrived in this. And, and if people are passionate, they will do it. You know, the buzzword today is engagement. I mean, I don't know how many times you've heard that word. I hear that word so many times every day. I almost want to throw up, right? I mean, it's just, just yeah. we, we need to have an engaged workforce. Well, if you want an engaged workforce, why don't you really find out what gets them motivated and go that exactly. way as opposed to pushing things that demotivate? them. You know, there's a company that I work with out of England, great company um, that measures engagement. And um, 
and I can I can already tell when I recommend them into a client who's going to say yes and who's going to say no because there there are companies that want to talk about engagement but don't want to do what's necessary to truly have an engaged workforce. Yeah, and I mean this goes back to the start of our conversation. Change is really hard. People like doing the same thing, but if anything, we've had two years, if not longer, of significant change and forced change. I think it's you know being solid with yourself that you are strong enough to make the right decision when faced with a challenging, different situation and know that you'll make the right decision. Be collaborative and hear what the people around you want. That's how we will all be able to develop a new way to get out of this crazy time um, and build a new future of work, build a new future of branding. But if you're so set in your old ways, if you're so controlling that you wouldn't have the view and not listen to anybody else's perspective, you're not going to be successful. Yeah. Uh, okay. So I've only got a couple minutes left before we have to wrap this. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking, oh my gosh, I, there, I've, there's so many questions Hang going on. through my head. There is, I want to change gears because there was one question I thought about earlier in the program I want to ask you. And then, then I want to make sure our, our listeners know how to find you if they have an interest in, in reaching out. Um, you know, we talked a little bit about, you know, finding a good marketing firm or whether you, maybe you're hiring a marketing person, companies, I see them do this all the time. And the science is the one thing, you know, do they have the metrics? Do they know how to measure and all that? But that art, the I, the figuring it out, if, if, if I or one of my clients is looking for somebody, how do, they, how do they evaluate the art side of the equation when looking at somebody who's going to come in? Yeah, I think it's a great question, Chris. Um, And I know that this is part of the change. I want to change. Where do I begin? One of the things that I've used is my reference point for all partnerships, all hiring of consultancies and agencies when I was in the client side is, do I want to be at a dinner party with this person? Or if this person was throwing a dinner party, are their clients representing the types of people I would want to be sat next to? I would find compelling conversations. And I think by thinking about that, like, are you in the same room with the right people helps you understand what are their values? What's the type of work literally in which industry that they're doing. And my idea of an elegant dinner party is probably different than your idea, Chris, and every different company's. So if you think this is, these are the type of things and people I want to hang with and use that reference point for how you're evaluating consultancies and agencies is to then see like, are they dealing with people like me? Do they understand my category? Do they understand my challenge? And are they doing cool things in the place that I also want to be relevant in? Or if it's not, you know, that marketable, cool thing, are they doing things that are impactful that my customers and my internal employees are going to respond to? That's the person you want to do business with. Excellent. Excellent. That's great thinking. And I appreciate that. And we are out of time. I, I just, <laughs> it, it, it goes fast. We, we say this all the time. Um, great conversation. So, um, you know, Molly, thank you for being with us today. If anybody's interested in finding Molly, um, Molly, your company is three lines, lines, plural, plural consulting, right? Yeah. Three and, lines consulting. Um, love to have a conversation about change, branding, color, all of it. Yeah, so we usually spell it out. So it's uh, T-H-R-E-E-L-I-N-E-S consulting.com. It would be Correct. probably the fastest way to find you. And, 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 and also for the listeners, you can always, if you're interested, you can always reach out to me and I can make a connection as well. So um, thanks again for being with us today, Molly. Chris, this was fascinating. I love your background and energy. Thank you so much for this opportunity. Well, it was fun. I always love these conversations. Okay, folks. Well, that's it for uh, this week's show. Stay tuned. We've got more great shows coming up. And thanks for listening. 
Thank you for joining Chris Elias for this week's edition of Transformative Experts. We hope you'll tune in again next Monday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time and 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. And catch our weekly replay on the Voice America Influencers Channel, Sundays at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time. Have a good week.